Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to the Homelands Adventure Podcast. Storytelling inspired by adventure. Welcome to the Homelands Adventure Podcast. Um, we're delighted to be joined today by Ian McIntosh. Those of you will know that we do a lot of work within adventure sports and have a particular passion for skiing and a particular uh, interest in having conversations with Canadian ski pros. So Ian, it's an absolute pleasure to have you on for an episode today. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. So I just wanted to start, I've read um, that you first got on skis two months after you started walking. Um, when you look back at your childhood memories of skiing, what is it that stands out to you from your memories of growing up with the sport? You know, I think uh, for me, it was just the ability to to be free um, from anything. You know, when, when I went skiing, I wasn't tied to um, anything other than just my own free will to do what I wanted to do and, and be in nature and go fast and and, uh, you know, feel the, the wind in my hair and, and, you know, it's just, you know, as a young guy, I just think I really gravitated towards everything that skiing offers. You know, I, um, when I was really little, my dad kind of laid it out to me. He's like, Hey, listen, you can either be a skier or you can be a hockey player, but we can't afford to put you through both as a Canadian kid. This is kind of like, you know, the question maybe a lot of us face. And for me, it was no question. I, I was fortunate to grow up in the mountains of British Columbia, Canada, and, and skiing was very accessible. My family was all avid skiers, and, and I, I really liked the individuality of it, but also that I got to be out in nature and, and be outside and go fast, whereas, you know, for me, I wasn't, you know, as keen to be in a hockey arena and kind of stuck inside and play team sport. I wanted to, to just do my own thing, so... I think I'm right in saying that you you started um, your uh, you started with the racing side of the sport in your in your earlier years. Um, could you maybe talk to us a little bit about about that and then how you made the transition from the racing and being drawn over towards more the the powder and the big mountain side of the skiing? Yeah, you know, I I I started off racing, and I think you know a lot of us uh, free skiers, at least of my generation, kind of started off and in the racing world, it was what we had at the time. And, and for me, I really enjoyed racing. I really enjoyed it, the competitive nature of it and, uh, challenging myself and, you know, having goals to pursue and so on and so forth. What I didn't like about it is it was just so regimented and, and, you know, I found myself shivering on a chairlift at minus 30 Celsius in a downhill suit way too often. And, and just, um, it was just a little too much for a, for a young kid I think so I eventually um you know my dad was you know huge avid avid backcountry ski tour both my parents were and and he was taking me you know into the backcountry and staying at um you know backcountry huts that we had on near where I grew up and I was being introduced to skiing powder and and the free ski world and and for me that was just far more of a draw just because I didn't have to be in this like super regimented like program and 
I think, you know, especially in Canada now, they've kind of realized that the only way to really keep kids um, going on the ski racing thing is to to allow them the freedom to go free skiing and ski powder and, you know, and, um, you know, not just be stuck in training courses every each and every day. But for me, eventually it got old and I wanted to just be a free skier. Um, you know, I didn't have any at that time, any, you know, notions of becoming a professional free skier or anything. I just wanted to simply do my own thing, ski powder and have fun. And that was really all it was about was just having fun. And then, you know, eventually led me down the road of where I am today. But, uh, but you know, I, I have a lot to thank for ski racing. It, it really, you know, helped build the fundamentals of being a good skier. And, uh, and that's something that, um, that, you know, I probably wouldn't have had otherwise. So I'm glad I did it. I'm glad I was, you know, able to, to experience it. But I'm also glad I moved on when I did. And when you were, when you were a kid growing up, who were you looking up to? um, in, in the sport, who were your, your idols and inspirational figures? Well, when I was a ski racer, it was, you know, the, the Canadian, the crazy Canucks at the time, you know, um, all the Canadian ski racers. I mean, it was that generation, you know, of, of Canadian ski racers and obviously the speed guys. I was, I was always into the speed disciplines in ski racing. So that's who I was really looking up to at that time. And then, you know, as I started to transition into the free ski world and started watching more ski movies and stuff like that, it was the, the Shane McConkies and the Seth Morrisons that really grabbed my attention and, and uh, started to be the, the guys that, um, you know, I was really, you know, inspired by. And when it comes to big mountain skiing, what would you say was your first big break in, in making that transition into that world? You know, uh, the, there's there's several different things i think that allowed me to to transition into that world but um you know first and foremost i was just kind of pursuing the ski bomb lifestyle i didn't really have any um real idea of what i wanted to do i kind of had it in the back of my mind watching ski movies like that'd be a great lifestyle it looks amazing um and then one winter when i was 19 um, I was living in Kicking Horse. Uh, it was the first year where they opened their their gondola and Golden there, and and skiing there. And then that summer, I decided to sell you know my vehicle and my mountain bike and everything that I owned at the time, and bought a plane ticket to New Zealand because I just wanted to live the eternal winter. And when I was in New Zealand, um, I managed to get myself into a contest called the World Heli Challenge that was you know going on at the time. Within that contest, um, you know, I did quite well, and it was like my first real contest in the sport. and And um, and I met like a bunch of ripping Canadian skiers that were all pro or semi-pro, and um, they all lived in Whistler. And you know, I grew up in the interior of BC, and when you grow up in the interior of BC, you kind of always hate on Whistler. Whistler is kind of like this tourist trap. You're like, ah, oh, why would I want to go there? It's just like super busy, and you know it's just a bunch of hype. Um, but those guys all kind of convinced me like, Hey, you know, you can move to Whistler and we're going to, we're making ski films. You could be in our ski films. And, you know, at the time I, I was kind of heading down the route of being a, a mountain guide, uh, a ski guide. And so I was like, okay, I'll take a little break from that pursuit and, and move to Whistler for a year or two and just have some fun with it and, and see where it takes me. Um, you know, being in Whistler, you're surrounded by, you know, the scene, the, there's like, I think, you know, vast majority of professional skiers in Canada live in Whistler. 
Um, Revelstoke has now started to like be a little bit of a hub as well. But especially at that time, if you were a pro skier, you lived in Whistler. And so being in the scene here, you know, starting to see and meet guys and ski with guys like Hugo Harrison at the time who was dominating the free ski um, tour, you know, and getting to ski with those guys and, and film a little bit with like small production, local production ski films. That was all kind of like helping kind of shape the skier I am today. But then it was really, you know, through the free ski tour that really shaped the skier I was today. A lot of people don't know this about me, but, you know, I used to like throw tricks off cliffs and, uh, you know, backflips and Lincoln loops and, and these sorts of things. And that was, you know, I, I think that was really the, the Seth Morrison uh, inspiration rubbing off on me. But then once I got into the free ski tour, the guy who was winning was Hugo Harrison. And he was just like going fast and stomping airs. And, you know, you got to think at, at this time where, you know, early 2000s, backslapping was still a very acceptable thing in our sport um, with in the movies and in contests. And uh, Hugo, you know, kind of paved the way for being like, that's not acceptable anymore. And I love that about his skiing. Um, so, you know, I did a couple of years uh, on the tour where I was having some success and then I was like completely exploding. And this other uh, French Canadian skier, Pierre-Yves Leblanc, kind of was mentoring me at the time and he pulled me aside and he was just like, dude, you can't go a hundred percent and expect to like stick every run. And that's what you got to do in these free ski comps. You got to stick every run. And so he's like, tone it down to 80% and you'll probably start to see more success. And of course I did 2004, I toned it down a little bit. Next thing you know, I'm second overall on the world tour that year in 2005 ended up third overall on the world tour that kind of got my name out there got some recognition got some initial like you know sponsors flowing with maybe a little bit of travel budget and and just gear and then um you know i was able to kind of get the attention of tgr teton gravity research and in 2006 they gave me an opportunity to come down to jackson and film with them and that was really like you know, that was the transition from like, okay, I'm starting to get known in this sport um, through the contest circuit and, and so on and so forth to like, now I'm getting contract, contract offers and companies are actually willing to pay me. And it was that first year filming with TGR that really opened those doors. So I, I always say that like 2006, that first year with TGR, that was when I became a professional skier was after that season. And so with the success that you had in the free ride world tour and with the, the now looking looking back from today you you've been in countless um ski films when you reflect back at this point in your career what are some of the highlights that really stand out to you I mean for me it, like on a personal level like aside from like um you know individual like you know achievements it was what I always dreamt of doing from watching the ski films was going to places like Alaska and skiing first descents and kind of exploring mountain ranges that free skiers have never explored. And through TGR, I got to do that for several years. And, you know, and I got to do it with Seth Morrison sitting in the helicopter with me. And like, here's my, you know, hero from being a young guy. And now I'm in the heli with him skiing first descents in Alaska. Now that for me, personally was like that's the ultimate highlight um you know in within all that there's the the you know winning powder magazine best line awards or breakthrough performer or or you know 
other nominations that I've got for awards or, or segments that I think, you know, stood out for me personally, but, um, but really it was, it really came down to like that, that childhood dream of, of like, you know, exploring mountain ranges and skiing first descents. And, and that to me was really, really special. Um, and then, you know, fast forward from all that it's like you know the career constantly needs to evolve and so then I took things kind of more of a foot-powered approach in the last bunch of years and um and I guess the most recent highlight was winning powder magazine best line um from a foot from doing it on foot and uh that was the first time anyone's been able to do that and so that's kind of a real special moment for me too when you when you reflect on those successes and you talk about um those highlights i think outside of um the skiing world uh probably most people will be familiar with you for going viral with a huge crash that you had um on a shoot in alaska yes. what was that like in terms of being thrust into the media spotlight outside of the sport in a different way and and also from the sense of it being not something not not focusing on necessarily all those positive accolades and all those achievements and accomplishments but you know the the media putting that perspective on you know being a crash and it almost being you know a bit of a disaster and 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 having your profile elevated in in a way that wasn't necessarily about you know all the success yeah i mean if i could uh if i could undo one thing in my career it would be like that um i hated it you know, I, I really fought with TGR to not release that crash. Um, you know, I got them to keep it out of the movie, which I guess looking back, I'm like, damn, I wish they just would have put it in the movie and then it probably wouldn't explode it on like the internet. Um, you know, when it went viral, you know, and, and the crew at TGR was like, yeah, we've put it out on online. You know, I was like, Oh, great. Well, hopefully, you know, it doesn't get much notice. And, when when that happened, I was actually flying to New York to do our ski movie premiere that season. And when I landed in New York, um, my phone just started going off with CNN and, you know, all these like major news networks around the world. And, you know, at the time, you're like, oh, this is kind of cool, actually. Like all these huge news networks want to interview me. Um, yeah, it's about a crash, but like, you know, maybe there's a positive spin on this. Um, but then I started to realize pretty quickly that, you know, this is just media. Um, and this is how media works in, in, you know, in kind of the major media outlets, they don't care. Um, unless you've got like some sort of like near death experience or something super dramatic that they can tell, you know, and, and that was kind of the one thing that I iterated in all my interviews that I did in the next few days, which was like 30 some interviews with major news outlets around the world is, you know, they would always ask me, like, do you want something, do you want to add something else? And of course, most of them edited this out of my interview. But I was like, yeah, I just think it's really interesting that none of you wanted to talk to me when, you know, for the last 10, 15 years that I've been like, you know, excelling at my sport and skiing lines like this without crashing. But then, you know, the second I almost die, every news outlet in the world wants to talk to me. And I just think it's kind of ridiculous. And, you know, of course, they most of them, like I said, edit that out. But um, I do think it's kind of ridiculous. And I think that's a, um, a major problem that we have in our society is that, is that we don't care unless someone's like, you know, unless there's huge drama or like someone's almost died or whatever in this case. And, and so, 
Yeah. I mean, for me, it's like, you know, you Google my name now and that's like the first thing that pops up. And I just think it's like a huge tarnish on my otherwise pretty successful career is, is like, you know, um, this one day that I made a critical error and, uh, and that seems to be like, you know, what a lot of people end up knowing me for outside of the sport, like you say. Um, and I hate it. I really do. But, but at the same time, it is what it is. And that's just, that's just how the major media works. And so, you know, I just got to accept it, and move on and, and keep, uh, keep pursuing what I hold dear to me, which is, which is, you know, the pursue, pursuing, pushing the sport and myself and being in the mountains and nature and, enjoying my life and living the dream that I, I'm so fortunate to live. And hopefully, you know, my career will go on long enough that eventually that'll just kind of like fade away. Something else, which I, I know you've discussed previously was um, having uh, uh, breaking your femur and being getting divorced within the same week um, in the context of the, negativity that came that you, or that you felt with with the the crash being kind of what thrust you into the mainstream media spotlight and and other aspects like that happening in your life you've always struck me as somebody who's very positive and puts a positive spin on things so when you're met with um uh these challenges what positive outlook and spin do you try and take and put on those experiences and how do you reflect back upon them now well you know i think I think as a human being, we should always be striving to to grow as individuals each and every day and learn from our mistakes and and try and be a better person um, each and every day in this world. And and so, you know, that's my other like big crash that I've had in my career. It didn't go viral because at the time the internet was not such a huge part of what we do. And social media wasn't a huge part of what we do and YouTube and all these sorts of things. It was, it was kind of before that time. So that crash actually, I think was much more deserving of going viral um, because I snapped my femur and it was way more dramatic, but regardless uh, it, it didn't, but it was a huge moment in my life. Cause like you say, I, I broke my femur and I got a divorce in the same week and, and that did a lot to me and it, and it actually changed me for the better. And, and, you know, when I return home to, my house here that I'm at right now here in Pemberton and it was empty. My wife was gone and I had a busted leg. You know, I could, I could, you know, go down this spiral of depression and like I ruined everything and blah, blah, blah. But instead I decided to, to look at myself and say like, why am I in this situation? Why did this happen? And what can I do to, to change that moving forward to not only recover from this injury and restore myself back to the career that I love and, and the sport that I love, but, but do it in a manner where I'm now a, a changed, better human being. And, and so I had to look deep and I had to, you know, um, see within myself, like it's not, you know, I think a lot of people, when, when bad things happen to them, they look externally like it's, it's that person's fault or it's this fault. It's some other reason instead of looking within themselves and being like, why did this happen? And, and then realizing that it's like, internal things led to this. And, um, you know, so I came out of that, you know, stronger mentally and physically than ever before. And fortunately I have amazing sponsors that all stuck by my side and through the whole endeavor. And, you know, it took me almost two years to get back from that. And, uh, it was two years of struggle and, and tons of hard work. Um, but you know, I wasn't just going to the gym. I was trying to fix 
here because that was the root of the problem was my brain inside my brain, my mind. There was something, something going on there that, that led to that mis, like critical error. Um, not only with my marriage, but within my sport and my injury. And, uh, and I started to get the answers that I needed and, and found myself being able to change myself, um, you know, mentally first. And then obviously physically I came back stronger than ever um, just through my commitment to, you know, wanting to return to what I do. But, but I think at the end of the day, you know, I, I really realized a lot about myself and I look back at that time as like, I needed to go through that. And it was a huge, actually, I look back at it as a positive experience that I needed to have happen in my life. I've heard you talk in the past as well about, about ego. And when you're on the ascendancy in the sport and the lines that you're doing, uh, getting bigger and bigger, and you're, you're in a helicopter with your, one of your childhood heroes, um, Seth Morrison, all these amazing things are happening. How important is it for that reality check to, to, to come in? Are there times when you, when you are standing on the mountain and you feel invincible and you feel that, you know, you, you can conquer the world and is it important to then have that reality check to creep in to, to just self check and, and, and make you a little bit more self-aware? I, yeah, 100%. I mean, I think one of the realizations I had through that experience was that I was very ego driven. Um, the ego is a powerful thing. We all have one. And um, I don't, I don't think it's realistic to completely shed your ego and to operate in this world without ego. Um, but it, it's important to recognize it and, and realize when it's driving the ship versus when, you know, you personally are, are making decisions based on your own personal desires. And what I mean by that is, Am I like, am I going to ski this line just simply because I want to show the world how rad I am? Or am I going to ski this line because it's something I really truly want to do because I want to push myself as an individual. And, you know, I think before that accident where I broke my femur, I was, I was really starting to get into this mindset and up until that time where I was just like, I want to show everyone how rad I am. You know, and I was like, that was my driving force. Like I had this chip on my shoulder. I needed everyone to know how like sick I am on a pair of skis. And, and then that's going to give me like the satisfaction in life that I'm looking for, that I miss it, that I felt like I was missing. Um, but now, you know, I, through realizing that now I, I approach things differently or at least try to approach things differently um, where I'm making sure that I'm doing it for me first and foremost. And then sure, if other people are inspired and, and stoked to, to see what I do, then great. But like it, first and foremost, I have to always check my ego. And that day where I did the viral crash, you know, fast forward a few years later, I fell back into those old traps where I was like wanting to show off again. And thus skipped all the necessary steps that I should have been taking to, to keep myself safe that day and make sure that I got down that, that line safely. Um, and, and it was funny, like right after the whole incident, I'm still picking up the pieces at the bottom of the slope. And, and, uh, and I'm thinking, man, I just, I just fell back into my old trap of like letting the ego drive the ship. And like I say, you know, um, ego can be a great thing sometimes, you know, I, I test, that that drive got me to where I am in a lot of ways. But at the same time, 
you need to constantly check it and make sure that um, that you're that you're pursuing things um, holistically and 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 for yourself before you're approaching things for others and what others might think of you and so on and so forth. And that's really just, you know, figuring out where, where ego falls in, in place and, and where its importance lies within each and every one of us. And, and it shouldn't be the driving force of, of what we're doing. It, you know, it, like I say, we all have it. It's all, we are, we're all in connection with our ego and, but it, it shouldn't be what's, what's driving you. And that should that should be through all aspects of life. And as far as I'm concerned, socially, um, and through your career, um, you know, money, materialistic stuff. A lot of people fall into the trap of like, I got, I need all these things to make me feel whole. That's the ego. You know, that's the ego is telling you that you need to like keep up to the Joneses or, or, you know, have these materialistic things so that everyone else thinks something better of you. And that's where the ego is, not very constructive. Um, and, and that's where you got to check it. And so I learned a huge lesson about, about ego through that accident and continue to do so this these days. And I don't ever claim to, you know, be a master of this, uh, mindset. I'm, I'm simply a student and I will be a student for the rest of my life in, in trying to channel my ego in the right ways and, um, and make sure that what I'm doing is first and foremost, um, for the right reasons. Presumably you still need to retain an element of ego in order to do what you do, you know, with, of course. with, with extreme big mountain skiing, you need to have that confidence in yourself and that commitment to the sport. So how do you maintain that balance? Well, then that's, that's the constant struggle, right? It's um, like I say, ego is something we all have and it's, and I don't claim to, not have one anymore because I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing. Um, but yeah, you know, you've got to have confidence standing on top of a mountain. Um, but it's the difference of, of I'm confident in myself to do what I'm about to do. And I really truly want to do this versus I'm doing this to show off. And so that other people will think greater of me. And as long as I constantly ask myself that question whenever I'm going into ski a big line, even to this day. And, and if the answer is I'm doing it to show off, then I will back away. And if it, but if deep down inside, I know I'm doing it for me and because I want to, because I love to push myself and because I love that feeling of putting yourself out there and pulling it off. And if those, if it's, if it feels right in that sense of the matter, then I know that, it's the right part of my ego that's driving the ship and not the, not the wrong part of my ego. Something that, um, uh, motto that you carry is that doubt kills more dreams than fear ever will. Why is that your motto? It's actually doubt kills more dreams than failure ever will. And I, I love that. I read it somewhere. I mean, it's not like I didn't come up with this. Um, but I love it because, I see a lot of people in this world doubt themselves and I'm not going to sit here and tell everyone like, Hey, pursue your dreams and for sure you'll achieve them because that's not reality. But what you will achieve is a happy life and you will never have regret. And I see a lot of people, they get, they fall into the trap of like, I need to do this because 
it's safe. You know, I need to pursue this career because it's going to make me a good living and that's safe. Even though it's not going to fulfill your life and bring you happiness. Or I need to pursue, you know, this relationship because it's safe or whatever it may be, you know. Um, And what that tells me is that people are scared to fail. They're scared to like put themselves out there and really pursue what they want to be pursuing in life because they're afraid that it might not work out. And I'm like, and what I try and tell people is that's okay if it doesn't work out. I've had lots of things in my life that didn't work out, but ultimately along the way I became a better person for it and a more fulfilled person and a person that was more true to myself and ultimately happier. For instance, if you're a young skier out there these days and you want to pursue the world of professional skiing, well, it's harder than ever these days. So the chances are really, really difficult to pull off. Not impossible. Pursue it though. Go for it. 100%. You'll never regret it because along the way, you'll meet amazing people. You have great adventures and you'll become a better skier. And you'll always have that for the rest of your life. And then moving on in the rest of your life, you'll always know you tried because you weren't afraid to fail. And yeah, you did fail. Maybe you did fail. But like ultimately you gave it a go and you can't have regret. And I feel like so many people at the end of their life are filled with regret because they didn't pursue the things they wanted to pursue. They went for what was safe. They were scared of failure. So they went down the safe route and they end up at the end of life full of regret. And I don't think anyone should end up at the end of their life full of regret. I think we should all end up at the end of our life going, heck yeah, I gave every, I went after everything I wanted and I gave everything I wanted, whether it was that relationship or that, that girl or that guy, you know, or, or that career or, or whatever it may be, you tried and there's, you can never be like bummed on yourself for that. You know, that's that ultimately that's how we should be pursuing life in my mind. One of the, the, the new um, initiatives that you're involved with now is over the past couple of seasons, you've teamed up with um, Youth Thrive Ski Retreats, um, where people can have the opportunity to, uh, to ski with you. Could you tell us a little bit about more about that initiative and um, how you got involved? So um, Youth Thrive Ski Retreats are awesome. Um, and uh, it's, it kind of came to me at a, part, a point in my career where I'm, you know, I'm looking to branch out and do other things. Um, you know, I've, I've got, I've realized at this point in my career as a big mountain skier that like filming for me, filming skiing is kind of like in the later half of the season. That's when the big lines started getting light and the conditions all line up. So if I focus my energy on filming skiing at that half of the season, that leaves me the whole front half of the season to go out and do other things. And Youth Thrive Ski Retreats are a great example of that because I not only get to go on a dream trip, ski trip for myself, but I get to bring a bunch of people that might be fans or, or just beginning to know what I'm all about or, or through the sport. I get to take them along on the adventure. So these are Rachel Finler, who started these ski retreats. Um, I met her in Whistler years ago and she reached out to me and she said, Hey Ian, this is what I'm trying to do. And I said, immediately, I was like, I love the vision. Let's do this. And let's go to places that I want to go. And if I want to go skiing in a spot, 
anyone else who loves skiing is going to want to go there too, because I've got a pretty good understanding of where it's awesome in the world because I've skied the whole world. And so, you know, I get to pick in a location and we all get together and we have like either an amazing chalet rented or hotel. Um, and you know, everything's kind of handled. Like the, the beauty of these ski retreats is, is a, they're in my mind, quite a fair cost, um, you know, considering and B you get to just show up and everything's handled. We've got it taken care of. I'm going to show you where the good snow is. I'm going to take you on, you know, the adventure. Um, we've got like an amazing chef. We've got, you know, everything's lined up so that, you know, you can go on ski vacation and not have to think about a thing. And then ultimately your, your guide through the whole experience is a professional skier like myself, or she does it with other professional skiers as well. Um, and it's growing. And for me, it's just such an awesome experience to connect with fans and, and ski with them, but also like have like a bit of a ski vacation myself. So, uh, you know, as far as I'm concerned, it's a win-win. So where's next? Where's the next retreat? Where can people uh, uh, look up and perhaps uh, sign up to come ski with you and go on an adventure with you too? So normally we do Chile. Uh, the pandemic's kind of uh, stopped that whole trip from happening this year. So next year we'll do Chile. So if anyone who's looking to ski in the northern, like in our summer, northern hemisphere summer, uh, come on down to Chile with me. Um, it's an amazing, amazing experience, both culturally and from the ski side of things and being able to ski in August. It's just, you know, if you're passionate about the sport, that's incredible. Unfortunately, we don't have that one this summer because of the pandemic, like I say. So we're going to go to Austria. Um, and we've set the Austria trip up to be fully cancelable and refundable. Uh, just in case the pandemic is still an issue and we can't make it happen. But, you know, Austria is an incredible country for skiing. They typically get really, really good snow and the free riding there is off the charts. And, you know, the beautiful thing is, you know, not a ton of people skiing off piste. So, you know, that's where I want to go. That's like, you know, that's, I went to Rachel, Rachel who owns You Thrive and said, Rachel, I want to go, shredding in Austria because I know how incredible Austria is for skiing. Let's go there. And she's like, okay. And she makes it all happen. And that's the beauty, beautiful thing for me doing this all is I basically just get to tell Rachel like what I want to do, where I want to go. She makes it all happen. We bring in the guests and it's, it's an incredible experience for everyone. So Austria is on our list for this winter. And from all the places that you've, you've traveled to um, over the years in the world, where's your favorite um, destination? Oh, it's so hard to say. You know, I mean, I've, there's, it's, for me, it's every place offers something different. And I love the Alps um, just because as a Canadian, I love the culture, um, uh, the ski culture and just the, the regular culture of Europe. And, um, you know, with kind of Italy actually is my favorite place to visit, but, you know, France, Italy, Switzerland, Austria, you know, anywhere in the Alps, I'm like so stoked to go experience. And what I love about being a free skier in Canada is the free ski culture in Canada is very strong. People are all getting after it. And so you got to fight for your fresh tracks here in Canada. But when you go to the Alps, most people are just happy to ski on piste. And so it's a lot easier to get fresh tracks day in and day out and all day long. 
And so I love that experience about the Alps. Um, but, you know, every place has its own, you know, beautiful aspect to it. Here where I live in Pemberton, British Columbia, there's one ski resort within hundreds and hundreds of miles, you know. And so the rest is all accessible via either snow, snowmobile to get into an area and then, and then hiking or, you know, driving your car up to some mountain pass and hiking from your car, you know, so there's an incredible amount of accessibility of, you know, terrain where there's just no people. And that's what I love about where I live. Alaska, I love because there's just no place like it where the snow sticks to the steeps and, you know, the mountains are jutting right out of the ocean and, you know, it's the terrain and the snowpack and everything's combined there. But, Alaska is very inaccessible. You kind of need a helicopter or, you know, a ski plane or something to, to, to gain access. So it's, it's very challenging in that respect, completely different to the Alps, which are incredibly accessible. Um, so, you know, and then South America, Chile, Argentina are, are incredible in their own right. You ski in the Andes and the culture that's involved down there and so on and so forth. So it's really hard for me to pick one specific place. You know, I mean, even ski resorts in the U S that I really love, but, uh, but ultimately, I think for me, when I'm going on a ski vacation, it's 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 somewhere where I can experience culture and um, and maybe the free skiing um, mentality isn't as strong as where I live, which kind of in many ways is like this epicenter of free skiing culture. Um, just so that it's just that much easier to get fresh tracks all the time. So the Alps are always high on the list, and South America is always high on the list for that reason. You've been heavily involved with um, Protect Our Winters for for a number of years, and uh, uh, we've spoken recently with uh, Mike Douglas and Izzy Lynch about the um, Protect Our Winters Canada faction. Um, I'm just interested to know, on a on a personal level, how has being involved with that organization affected you and your uh, habits as as a human being? Well, you know, I mean. First off, I've been with Pal since pretty much the beginning. Like Jeremy Jones is a good friend of mine um, and someone who I look up to and is a huge inspiration of mine. Um, and when he started it, I was like on board from the onset. But the problem for me was as a Canadian is, you know, Protect Our Winners tends to like get quite political um, because we realize at Protect Our Winners that um, that's a great way to drive big change is from the top down. We got to change the way government operates and thinks, and that'll have a trickle down effect, help getting people to vote for, for politicians who give a crap about the environment is, is a key initiative of ours. But I was always disconnected with the American politics because as a Canadian, I just can't relate to it. And it's just, it's, it's a crazy world to me and it drives me crazy. It drives me bonkers to even try and get involved. And then when I did get involved, you know, I'd just have a bunch of Americans telling me to shut up because I'm Canadian. And so, you know, now that we have Protect Our Winners Canada um, and Mike Douglas is spearheading it and, uh, and Izzy and, and I'd, I feel like I've, I'm more empowered to make a difference within my own country and um, both on a political uh, front and, um, and just in my own personal life and, and inspiring other Canadians to, to drive for change and make their own personal changes. And, and then, you know, ultimately what it's done to me is, is I'm way more conscious of my impact. You know, we were just talking about youth drive ski retreats and, you know, obviously that involves traveling around the world and so on and so forth. And what I do and the 
sport of skiing in general is has a big carbon footprint. There's no doubt about that, but um, I'm way more conscious of it. Um, and, you know, I'm, I make a lot of changes in my own personal life within the sport. I've gone way more foot powered approach um, to minimize my impact there or at least have the image of a more minimal impact, whether or not I truly am is, is, you know, I mean, sure. Helicopters burn a lot of fuel, so I'm, I'm not using those and as much. And, and that does have a, you know, an impact, but within my own personal life, I'm very conscious. I became vegan eight months ago. Um, and that's primarily because, um, you know, I see what the agricultural, industrial, agricultural uh, industry does to the planet. And I felt like it's a, it's a way that I could, you know, have make more of a change in my own personal life. Um, because I'm not going to just stop skiing and traveling. You know, I mean, that's just part of who I am. It's my job. It's what I do. Um, and I'm very fortunate to do that, but I have to have some sort of accountability. So, you know, changing my diet has been a huge part of that. And the list goes on. I mean, I can, I can give you all kinds of examples about how I use bamboo toothbrushes and, you know, the, the, my, what I choose to buy in this world and how, you know, I don't go to the grocery store with, with no thought into what I'm getting. You know, I make sure it's as local as I can. And, you know, I'm looking for ingredients like palm oil and, and stuff like that, that, that I know have a huge impact. And, and that's all an influence of power. It's like, you know, it's like, how can we all minimize our own impact? And then on a grander scale, drive, imp, drive change from the top down. And, and that's, you know, I, I feel like for myself as an athlete, I have to have a responsibility to, you know, I've, I've got, um, you know, I've, I've got a, an influence on, on a audience of people and, and sure I could just not care and take a stand back and, and just do my sport, um, as, as many do, but I choose that, you know, if, if I've got, if I've been blessed with this life, then that comes with some sort of responsibility. And my responsibility is to try and drive change and, and be a better person and, and make the world a better place. And, you know, we're going through an environmental crisis, whether everyone wants to believe it or not, it's happening. I've, you know, through POW, I've met some of the top climatologists in the world and what they have to say around a beer after their, you know, neat and tidy presentation is quite scary. And, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of things that we're heading towards that are inevitable, but there, we do still have the ability to, to drive for huge change. And, you know, I've got a brand new baby girl in my life. Um, I'm, you know, a new father and, and I think about her life and, and what, you know, opportunities she's going to have at my age. And, and it would be pretty selfish for me to be a father and, and not think about her future. So pal's pal's like kind of like a you know, part of the, that whole deal. And, has, um, you know, influenced that whole deal. But ultimately I became part of POW because that's what I'm passionate about. And so it's kind of like, you know, the whole cyclical, you know, relationship. And when you, when we talk about the, all the places that you love to ski around the world and obviously is a part of being a professional athlete within the sports skiing, you, you do travel a lot and, you know, the, the use of helicopters, et cetera, being part of your career, when you are on um, uh, social media and you're you're trying to promote the the positive messages and uh, key messages from the the power perspective, um, what is that 
interaction like with people and the response when there is that duality of um, leaving a footprint and promoting a message and how do you respond and interact with the criticism that perhaps comes along with with what you're doing i think i owning it is the it is the key you know like i know that what my job is has a high impact and i probably have a higher carbon footprint than a lot of people or at least some and i am a hypocrite just like we all are but we were all born into this fossil fuel burning intensive industrial world like we we didn't create this world i didn't create this world i grew up in it and as i grew up i i became educated and through my career i've become more educated and so i'm trying and that's all we can all do and and but i think ultimately it's owning it it's like yeah i'm not perfect none of us are how could we be we were born into this society this capitalist you know fossil intensive fossil fuel intensive industrialized society that puts our own comforts and um ease of life and everything above the protection of our home which is planet earth and so you know I think owning it first and foremost and then and then being like, okay, hey, you know what? I'm not perfect. I don't expect you to be perfect either. I don't care if you work for an oil company. I don't care if you mine coal. I don't care if you work in some, you know, industrialized mining, you know, corporation or what, what you're involved in. Like you can still care because I'm a skier and we have a, we have bigger impact than some, but I can still care and I can drive for change. And everyone can. And that doesn't mean necessarily that we, we lose our jobs and we have to stop doing what we're doing. It just means that we're, we're, we're pushing and striving for a better future for all. And um, so I think first and foremost is just acknowledging that, you know, I'm a hypocrite just like everyone else. And then, okay, now that I've acknowledged that, here's what I'm passionate about. And I'm allowed to care just like everyone else is. Um, and I'm allowed to use my voice. And I think it would be, I'd be far more, I wouldn't say hypocritical, but I'd be far more, um, I don't even know what the word is, but you know, if I didn't care and if I didn't use my voice, then what does that make me? Does that make me better? No. So, you know, call me out for being a hypocrite. That's fine. But I'm still giving a really solid effort on my end and I'm using my voice. And so isn't that better than, than not. And I think ultimately, as people, we need to realize that like, it's not constructive to call each other out. This isn't what we're striving for. We're like to, to sit back on the internet and be a troll and just call everyone else out for their hypocrisy is not constructive. It's, it's, we should all be cheering each other on and patting each other on the back and saying, heck yeah, you're allowed to care. And I don't care what you do for a living or, or, or what you're involved in, you're allowed to care and we should all care and we should all strive for this better future. And the only way we do it is united together. And um, I think, you know, a lot of powers that be, they, they want us to be trolling each other on the internet and calling each other hypocrites and, and making us feel bad for trying to take a stand. But ultimately at the end of the day, it's, we didn't create this world. So, you know, we shouldn't feel bad. And we should all be trying and we shouldn't be afraid to be called hypocrites and we shouldn't be afraid to be called out for our own mistakes and our 
you know, living. Cause that's really what it comes down to is we, we all live in this world. You know, I've, I've got a snowmobile. I've got a truck. I live in Pemberton. That's how we access a lot of our skiing. I'm sorry. I'm, you know, I'm going to, once the electric snowmobiles are available and electric trucks are available, sure. I'll head down that road. Is that necessarily way better for the environment? Well, probably not because there's still a lot of mining involved and battery production and so on and so forth. But ultimately I think it is a better direction that we should be taking our society. And, and we need to be asking like, what are the real solutions to the problem? And it can't just be left up to us as individuals. It has to come from the top down, but the only way we can influence the top down is to vote. And that's really what PAL is about. And that's really what our message is about is, is drive change from the top down because we can only do so much, you know, we can all go vegan and that's only going to change so much. We still need change from the top down. Um, and so, yeah, I get, you know, long winded answer for sure. But like, Ultimately, it's just owning my own hypocrisy and then trying to convey my message through that. Thinking about driving positive change from the top down, do you have any political ambitions on a personal level? It's funny you say that. I have like, I've had like, I'm quite passionate person, right? And I think that leads to a lot of people being like, you should be in politics. And I'm like, no, I am not suited for politics. Not because I don't think that like I couldn't do a good job. But I just think like politicians are held, I mean, aside from what's going on in the U.S. Um, and some other countries in the world right now with this nationalistic view where politicians can, you know, be, you know, just low down awful human beings and still somehow make it into power. I don't, I don't think I would be a good fit. I just, you know, I, I think they would be like, well, you're not educated enough. You haven't worked in, you're, you, you have no history of this, blah, blah, blah. Now, do I think I could do a good job? Yeah, because I am a born leader and, and so on and so forth. Do I have any dreams or notions of being in politics? Heck no. I don't want anything to do with it because it's an incredibly tough job and there's just too much scrutiny involved. Um, and I, you know, I, wouldn't be able to, I wouldn't be able to keep my mouth shut. I'd, you know, I wouldn't be able to not tell people to f*** off you know, when they're you know, not being true. Um, or being real, or if, you know, if someone on the other side of the political spectrum is trying to call me out on my, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be able to hold my tongue. And, and I just don't think it's, it would, I don't think I'd be able to pull it off, but, um, and ultimately I just don't desire it enough. I don't want that responsibility. Um, I'm, you know, I'm really happy that, that people do pursue that life, but it's, it's tough because I, you know, I say all that and then I'm like, well, you know, it seems like politics attract all the wrong people. They're just kind of power hungry and, um, and don't care enough. And I'm just hoping that through, through people actually making a stand and voting for those who do actually have morals and, and want to govern in, in a, in a way that is better for everybody and not just them themselves, not just for their own power struggle and, and, um, and desire to pad their own pockets. If, if it's beyond that and it's true public surface, then those are the people we should be voting for. Um, but I will never be a politician. <laughs> 
So being a family man now, um, talking about your work with um, Protect Our Winters Canada, um, the retreats with Youth Five, how do you see your your career progressing from this point forward? Well, you know, it's funny, like, I'm 38 now, and for the last couple of years, I've kind of like been like, oh, I'm getting old for my sport, you know, maybe I should just, you know, find other things to do. And then this last year, I said, I decided to say, like, you know what, like, power of manifestation, if you tell yourself that you're old, and you tell yourself that, like, you got to find other things to do, then that's what's going to happen. You know, like ultimately people are going to think you're old and you need to find other things to do. I just had an awesome year. It got cut super short. Um, you know, we're, we're talking like early March, my year cut cut short. And that's the time of year where I get the most shit done. And I've, I had so much planned, um, but I still had an amazing year. And I've really kind of found the direction that I want to be heading right now. And it's skiing big lines. Like I just want to ski big lines. I want to do it with a foot powered approach. And, um, ultimately I don't see, uh, a time when I won't be able to do that in the near future. So as far as a professional skier, I'm going to keep that going for a long time, um, to come, I hope. And then ultimately, you know, outside of that, I've been pursuing my Canadian ski guide ticket and, um, you know, doing these ski retreats and guiding people in the mountains, I think is going to be an, an avenue for me moving forward. Um, but, but right now it's like, you know, the ski career is still thriving. So I'm going to continue to pursue that because I'm still super motivated too. And, um, and then, you know, fast forward, however many years, uh, you know, the, the guiding and their ski retreats and, and these sorts of things, I think will be a, a big part of what I do. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much for having the time to uh, chat today, Ian. Um, it's been a, a pleasure talking with you. If people want to uh, connect with you, find out more, find out more about uh, uh, the ski retreats and join you for an epic adventure in the mountains, uh, how can they connect with you and where can they do that? Well, social media is always a great way to connect, right? I, um, I try and pride myself in always responding to people's messages, whether it's comments or, or DMs on Instagram. My Instagram handle is my name, Ian McIntosh. McIntosh spelled M-C-I-N-T-O-S-H. There's a shameless plug for social media. But, you know, they, you, can, you can follow me there, or even if you don't follow me there, whatever, your choice is yours, but you can at least message me there, and I'll get back to you. And, um, and then through that, you know, obviously you Thrive's um, website and... Um, and you can also find you thrive through, through me on my own personal channels. So, um, you know, you can connect with me those ways and ultimately you can come skiing with me. So, uh, you know, I want to really, you know, open that up to people like let's go skiing together and I want to have fun and I'm into having a good time. I want to show you the best time that we both can have on snow. So join one of our ski retreats and then in the coming whether it's this year in Austria or in the, or in the next couple of years and uh, we'll have the best time and we'll connect on a personal level. And, you know, everyone who's been on my ski retreats in the past is now I consider a friend of mine and we, we are in constant communication. So um, I think it just, you know, it opens a lot of doors to not only have a good time, but create a lifelong relationship. So I really encourage people to do so. Incredible. Brilliant. Thanks again, Ian. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you so much. 